I'm Jenny Nevinson, but you can call me Penny Flyme. And you are listening to the Minder Podcast. Welcome to episode 22 of the Minder podcast in association with Minder.org. I am your host, Paul Stenning. May the 8th is of course the one year anniversary of Dennis Waterman's passing. If you haven't already done so, you might want to listen to the tributes Dennis released in June last year. In this episode, we are going to look back at Dennis's 2000 autobiography Reminder, specifically the chapter on Minder. The book, written with Dennis's manager, Dee Carlin's wife, Jill, was, as I mentioned in the tribute episode, a little disappointing at the time of release. It seemed to have too many contributions from others for an autobiography, and it was very light on the minder material. However, I reread the book at the beginning of the year and enjoyed it much more than previously. Perhaps with having more context myself, it just made a little more sense. By and large, the contributions from others do help the story Dennis tries to tell, though often the book is at its best when the subject takes over and reveals his own experiences. What disappointed me initially was the fact there were only recollections from a few episodes and very little from behind the scenes. This is still quite disappointing, but it's also a useful overview of the show and how it came to be made. What I'm going to do is read the Minder chapter in full, so if you don't have the book you can hear some of the inside take on the show. Some of this material follows on well from the Leon Griffiths tribute also. If you do have the book, then perhaps this might be a nice reminder for you. I'm also aware there is an audio version of the book read by Dennis himself. I have not heard it in full, but as far as I know, there is quite a bit of material missing. I think this might be the inclusions from others, so if anyone has the audio version, let me know. But this is definitely the full Minder chapter coming up, with just a very small amount of editing. I also want to address the way Dennis seemed to have an aversion to talking about Minder for so long. He obviously knew he had to cover it in his book, and seemed to begrudgingly do so. For many years I have wondered just what he had against the show. After all, it seemed to underline his already magnificent career. Everyone loved the show, what's not to like? He even went on to reinvent himself with new tricks, and have yet another golden series loved by the public. So why did he want to move on so much from Minder? What exactly was it that he didn't want to relive? After reading the book in full, the answer to me was obvious, and it had nothing to do with Minder. When the chapter finishes, I cover the reason for Dennis's negative opinion on the show. It's just my opinion, of course, but it does make sense. Much more sense than just having an aversion to the show continuing past its best. Just a note on the chapter. There is, of course, a large narrative from Dennis, but there are regular inclusions from others. Where this happens, I will mention the name of the person and read their contribution as well, before saying, back to Dennis. Hopefully this won't sound too distracting. It does take a bit of getting used to. So in tribute to Dennis Waterman once again, and in honour of some fascinating insight into Minder, here is chapter 15 from Reminder. 
Chapter 15, Minder After the Sweeney, Thames TV and Euston Films started looking for a new series for me. One or two ideas were quite interesting, including one in which Carter goes underground, a sort of British Serpico, Deke Arlen. A meeting was held over lunch at Thames with Brian Cowgill, Jeremy Isaacs, Verity Lambert, Dennis, myself and Jill, my wife, who at that time worked as part of the creative side of our business, and Dennis Sellinger, who was then new to the team. The plan was to create a new series around Dennis, this time featuring him in the leading role. Their intention was to approach all the top writers for ideas, but in the meantime his popularity was such they were eager to hold him under contract, for fear he might be poached by the other side. Dennis and I decided this was not necessary. We did not want to be bound by anything. He would go under contract only when a series had been developed with which we were happy. Various fairly predictable plots and situations were suggested, all heavy-hitting and aggressive, along the lines of the Sweeney. In contrast, Jill, knowing Dennis, proposed that a series should be developed which exploited Dennis's lighter side, whereby, although he was obviously physically capable of looking after himself, he escaped tight corners using wit, charm and humour rather than in fists. Rather like the character played by James Garner in the old American TV series The Rockford Files. We had such a character working for us at that time. Danny Francis, the son of George Francis, the renowned boxing trainer, was employed as minder to the young Sheena Easton and travelled the world with her on tour. He was a giant of a young man with blonde curls and a baby face and seemed as gentle as a lamb. He raised his voice to no one and sorted out any dodgy situations with a smile and a joke, but if push came to shove, boy, could he sort things out. Many tense moments on the road had been deflated by Danny's sense of humour. In fact, we had begun to doubt his dad had taught him anything at all about using his fists, until one night in a hotel bar in Hong Kong, when a group of very drunken Scottish rugby players, mistaking the glossy tour jackets as belonging to Americans, decided to take on the boys in Sheena's band, who were enjoying a quiet drink after the show. Danny was sitting in a rather low chair with his back to them. They teased him about his golden locks, and the others too about the way they looked, until tempers began to fray. Danny calmed down the band and tried to finish his drink in peace, but the Scots wouldn't give up. One burly bloke, red in the face, lurched over and demanded a fight with one of the puffs. Why not Goldilocks? And he tugged Danny's hair. Wearily, Danny got up, and up, and up, and up. The Scot was aghast. Almost casually, Danny let rip with a short right, and the Scotsman flew across the room as though he was on a wire. Not another peep was heard out of them. Back to Dennis. George Taylor of Euston Films phoned up one day during Christmas and asked if he could drop round a couple of scripts and an idea for a new series. He also lived in Richmond, so within half an hour I found myself reading two finished scripts and three or four storylines of something called Minder by Leon Griffiths. Leon had an amazing reputation and was correctly regarded as one of television's best writers. Although beautifully written, those early scripts were far more gritty and vicious than the series eventually became. What I relished was the humour and the characters, Arthur Daly and Terry McCann. They were real, they were three-dimensional, and as people commented later, there's a Terry and an Arthur in every walk of life, and we all know one. I needed no second thoughts. In those days, once a television company had decided on a production, they got on with it. 
the power of casting, budget and scheduling, etc., was in the hands of the programme maker. Now, within commercial television, everything has to be presented to a central committee. It, and it alone, has the ultimate power of selecting what programmes are to be made. The committee exercises enormous influence over budgeting and casting, and has total control over times of transmission. There have been instances, for example, where it has completely overridden the choice of actor by the writer and the creative team, and cast someone totally unsuitable for a role, purely on the grounds of their being flavour of the month. I certainly know of one such show, where the leading part was written especially for a particular excellent actor by an extremely eminent theatre and TV writer. Fearing the actor was not commercial enough, the committee recast, and as a result, the show died on its feet. Today's television hierarchy is totally obsessed with ratings. Had the programme centre been in situ in the late 70s, it is questionable whether there would have ever been more than one series of Minder, because it certainly wasn't an overnight success. However, in 1978, everything swung into action fairly quickly. George Taylor and Lloyd Shirley, the old Sweeney team, were to produce the series for Euston Films, which ensured the quality of production would be high. Verity Lambert was appointed executive producer, and Linda Agron script executive, a formidable and talented duo. Linda Agron. It was very different from anything we had done before, in that it was the first drama that employed a strong comedy line throughout. It says much about Dennis's good judgement, that he recognised immediately just how much that would stretch him as an actor. We shared some hilarious lunches or meetings, during which we discussed choice of cast and crew. Of course the ultimate decisions were theirs, and I'm sure seeking my opinion was purely cosmetic, but it was lovely to be so involved at such an early stage. Remembering his wonderfully seedy performance in the film Alfie, and how much I had enjoyed working with him, I suggested that maybe Denham Elliott would be interesting as Arthur Daly. He was duly added to the list. In a restaurant in Kew, I was told that George Cole would be my co-star. Oh, I countered, isn't he a bit posh and maybe a bit too soft? We think he'll be perfect. I knew he was a wonderful actor. I had been a huge fan since seeing him in a series written by my old chum Doug Livingstone called A Man of Our Times. Obviously, I also remembered him as Flash Harry in the St Trinian's films, but this new series was set deep in the underbelly of current society. 50s filmic Londoners were a far cry from what we would be portraying. Linda Agron. Denham Elliott was without doubt a fantastic actor. The problem was he had the look of an ex-minor public schoolman, on the way down, debauched, slightly shifty, a man on the skids. Our man Arthur was quite the opposite, a man on the make. A sort of Freddie Laker, without the success. No education, he left school early and fought his way up. A man who never really does anything, but always believes that the big time is just about to happen. George Cole. I was in a very depressing Dennis Potter play. My agent phoned to say Lloyd Shirley and Linda Agron had called for a meeting about a possible show they'd like to talk about over a drink, maybe before the theatre. I thought for a moment. I live way out of London. It would mean coming up early and I was driving, besides which I never drink before or after the show. No, I said. Besides, I've done armchair theatre. They know me and what I can do. Three days later, they phoned again, asking me at least to come and have a coke with them. Grudgingly, I agreed. I had no idea whether they were going to talk about a play or what. It turned out to be a series. Do you think you have enough stamina for that, Mr Cole? Lloyd Shirley asked. 
507 episodes later and 15 years further on, the answer is yes. He showed me the format and immediately I read the description of the character of Arthur Daly. I knew I wanted to do it. It said, he is the same age as some good-looking American film star. He's totally behind the Home Secretary as far as law and order is concerned. His favourite film is The Godfather and he dresses like a dodgy member of the Citizens Advice Bureau. Next thing I knew, we were shooting the titles and I hadn't even seen a script. Tom Clegg When the directive came out that Thames was looking for a new idea for Dennis, I sat down with Troy Kennedy Martin and Trevor Preston, but we never came up with a successful format. Then Leon wrote Minder, and I was asked to direct the first two episodes, except when I read it, I wasn't too sure what we were supposed to be aiming for. Was it a gritty street series or a comedy? I also didn't like the first episode, Gunfight at the OK Laundrette. It began with Dennis imprisoned as a hostage with George on the outside. I thought, what a stupid way to start a series, with the two main characters separated. I turned it down. At first, people did not know what to make of it. Because there was a strong element of comedy, there was even the thought of trying to make it more entertaining by adding a laughter track. To perform comedy without audience reaction is very difficult for actors. They have to time their lines where they think there might be laughter, so that the speech that follows is not lost. The fact that the crew may laugh at something is not always a true indicator. Dennis was always so popular with all the technicians they laughed easily. The only thing that does work is an essential feel for timing, and a true understanding of both material and characters. Dennis and George were both masters of the art. really appreciate this, Terry. Oh, I think nothing of it. Been keeping out of trouble these days. Reform character. That's the way it should be. Ed Arthur. He don't chase, does he? <laughs> no. Don't know what he needs a minder for these days. He don't get up to any skullduggery, does he? Arthur? No, no. Just makes him feel good, I think. Ah, he's a well-respected man. Always has been. Well, it did me a favour anyway. Huh? What was that? I don't remember now. But he's always telling me he did me a favour, so I suppose he must have done. Roy Ward Baker. Dennis notes. Roy Ward Baker directed several episodes, and he grasped the spirit of the piece immediately. He says, You could not resist the innate essence of the thing. Leon was a man who, although a serious writer, never took anything too seriously. He'd written a number of films and a lot of television, and was a man I respected and liked. There were no arguments with him, he just laughed. However, I did think the balance would be difficult to maintain, and it would become much more an entertainment show. Back to Dennis. For a reason I'll never fully understand, the first episode was given to Peter Sarsdy to direct. He had quite a good reputation, but he was Hungarian and lived in Weybridge. I have absolutely nothing against either Hungary or Weybridge, but I don't think coming from either location gives you a great insight into the gutters and drinking dens of West London. He also used to arrive with a detailed storyboard illustrating how each scene would be shot before we actors had set eyes on the location and without allowing us the chance to have any input at all, and he taught me into having a perm. I initially agreed with the theory that it would get me away from the old Sweeney image, but it ended up looking really dopey. Should you happen to watch any mind repeat, you will notice that in the credit sequence at the beginning, I got a very strange barnet indeed. It was during this pre-production period, 
when you were called for various meetings about clothes and makeup that George Cole and I first met. Neither of us are the most outgoing types when it comes to first meetings, so it was all rather restrained. I was still worried he might be a little too urbane for Arthur. But we would be working together for the next six months, so we might as well get on. And we were getting on, albeit in a very polite manner. Finally, we started filming. Because of my history with Euston Films, it was like coming home. For George, it was a whole new ball game, which must have made him feel like an outsider. For the first few days, everything was terribly professional, on time, word perfect, and very respectful. Then I started having a laugh with the crew, and noticed George occasionally looking up from the Times crossword to see what was going on. George Cole. Dennis and I circled each other for about three or four days. After that, you would have thought we'd been working together for years. I've never had a job which I've looked forward to going to so much every single day. Personally, Dennis and I are complete opposites. He is a social animal. I prefer being at home doing nothing, watching racing on TV or doing a bit of gardening. To illustrate how different we are, Penny and I were driving home past our local village pub when we noticed a sign in the window advertising fresh eggs. We went in, bought some and had a drink. The barman chatted away then said, You thinking of moving down this way, sir? I've lived here for over 22 years, I answered, just never been in the pub. When we first started the series, we each had our own Winnebago. Halfway through, we both agreed, this is silly. We've got so much work to do together, let's share one between us. He had one end where he could play cards, and I had the other where I could smoke my cigar at lunchtime and do the crossword. Although before long, Dennis joined me in doing this too. Back to Dennis. From 1978 on and off until 1987, through 63 episodes and one Christmas special, George Cole and Dennis Waterman laughed all day, every day, of their working lives. By the second episode, we were brothers in arms, and woe betide any director who tried to get either of us to do anything we didn't agree with. I don't mean us to sound like a couple of prima donnas who refused direction, but we both had exactly the same instinct about what worked and what didn't. George Cole We used to meet up in makeup every morning at about 7am, and go through the script and the day's work. If either of us wanted to cut something, or change the script, nine times out of ten the other would have marked it. Linda Agron. Gunfight at the OK Laundrette really set up the characters. Leon knew and loved all these people. They were real, which is why he portrayed them so vividly. He used to frequent a drinking club in Hampstead, known as Death in the Afternoon. It was there that he first heard the phrase Err indoors, from a character at the bar who had informed him, Got to go back, her indoors wants to go shopping. The episode was based on a real event, the Spaghetti House Siege in Knightsbridge. A group of fanatics had been cornered in an Italian restaurant, where they held hostage the very excitable Italian staff and demanded a plane to Ethiopia. Needless to say, it was a bungled operation and the siege failed. I'm sure those involved at the time were not amused, but Leon immediately saw the comic side and thought it would make a great minder. Dave King, the comedian, gave a brilliant performance in one of his first straight roles as an actor. As for Dennis and George, it was instant combustion on the screen. The chemistry was in their complete differences. Dennis had an extraordinary rapport with the crew. There was this feeling on the floor that they were his crew, and they were the ones he relaxed with, talked with of laddish things, drank within the pub. Yet for all that, Dennis is far more complicated than he either appears or pretends to be. For a man whose reputation lies in being gregarious, gives off conflicting signals of being guarded, insecure, lonely and even solitary. George, on the other hand, was quiet, 
shy, quite bluff but grounded, a man happy with his lot, always open and receptive, quite content to sit and do his crossword, then jump in his car and go home to his wife. Well, it's only an ordinary door, just talk normal. This is Chief Superintendent Gibson. Can you hear me? Yeah, terrific. Yeah. And listen very carefully. The building is entirely surrounded. No possibility of escape. Many of the officers on duty here are trained marksmen. I suggest that you open this door, throw out all weapons, and come out of that room one by one. No one will be harmed. Tell him bullshit. Can you understand me clearly? Yeah. Bullshit. No, tell him this ain't no ordinary robbery. Tell him this is political. Well, that's a great idea, Stretch, but you've left it a bit late in the day, don't you? All right. Uh, this is not an ordinary robbery. This is a political act. What's that supposed to mean? Uh, this is a demonstration for equality and freedom. And if you don't move away from the door, you might get your head blown off. Exactly what political group do you represent? Uh, we more or less represent a broad spectrum. Oh, yes. Irish? Um, not so as you notice, no. Well, if we knew exactly what political group we were dealing with, maybe we could get somewhere. Over to you, pal. Uh -huh. Tell him the independent Rastafarian army. Hey, turn it in stretch, that's not right. Shut up, Winston, let me do the brain work, okay? Uh, apparently, they're the independent Rastafarian army. And what exactly are your demands? Well, look, there's an old lady in here who needs a cup of tea. We need a doc. All right, all right. Uh, when we're ready to talk again, we're banged three times on the door. OK, get back over there. Move! Move, all right, all right. Stretch, you never told me nothing about the independent Rastafarian, what's he? Look, you're wearing a Rasta hat, ain't you? Yeah, why? Well, it's only because I like the colours. Yeah, he could be wearing his Fulham supporters, Woolly, couldn't he? Yeah, you think it's a big joke, huh? Well, let me tell you something, Mr. Hardman. Your body's going to be the first one to fling out of here. How about that for a joke, huh? Mm. Well, you've got the shooter. Makes you top man, doesn't it? Right on. Except you ain't done too well so far, have you? It's 500 quid's worth of silver all over the pavement. <laughs> It's hardly the great train robbery, is it? And you're the man who screwed it up. How are we going to get out of here, Stretch? I'm thinking about it. What are you crying for? You ain't a baby. Here, Stretch. I just thought of something. What? That independent Rastafarian army. You know how the initials come out, don't you? IRA. George Cole. It was during the first episode that I had my moment of inspiration. We were organising with wardrobe how we should dress as the characters. Our director, Peter Sarsdy, decided Arthur should be smart, not grotty, but elegant and sharp. 
I was dispatched to Savile Row with instructions to buy two suits. The producers were not best pleased. It was not their idea of Arthur, and the bill was not within their budget. The suits cost £400 each. We were shooting a scene in which Dennis was involved in a fight. Another character appears round the corner. I was supposed to grab him and he starts to fight with me. I stopped and called the director over. Just a minute, I said. Do you know how much this suit costs? He said, why? I said, because if we so much as get a mark on it, the producers are going to kill us. He blanched. What are we going to do? Tell you what, I said. As soon as I see him coming, at the least whiff of a scrap, I'll duck out, whisk away round the corner and leave Terry to handle it. From then on, whenever there was any aggro, Arthur always slipped away. I never did like fight scenes. Tom Clegg. Dennis was incredibly lucky to go from one successful series to another, but even luckier to enjoy not one great partnership, but two. It was incredible. Back to Dennis. Very soon we were asking directors not to give us close-ups, virtually unheard of in television, because any scene in which we were both involved worked 100% better if the two of us were in shot. We were so in tune and our ad-libbing was so proficient that if the scene called for it, directors gave up saying cut, allowing us to carry on improvising our dialogue. I have to say somewhat immodestly that some of our lines have been quoted in the papers as illustrations of the strength of writing in the show. George Cole. This was where Dennis and I were wise. We never laid claim to any words we might have added. We never said to the writers, you didn't write that, we did. Never. And it worked. It was a team effort. If it was a good line and they were happy with it, they were quite content to believe they'd written it, and we left it like that. In fact, when It'll Be Alright on the Night started, the show in which outcuts from various shows were exposed to the public eye, we had very few to send in, simply because when Dennis and I were in a scene together, and one of us delivered the wrong line, the other would respond to that line without a thought. There was that kind of instinctive rapport between us. Roy Ward Baker There was hardly anything for a director to do. You could put in odd little touches, pump up a line here or there, play something funnier or darker, but apart from that they swan through it. I was lucky in that I worked mostly with Leon scripts, but occasionally we altered dialogue, sharpened it, moved it around a little, put in jokes as long as the humour was right and relevant. We liked to nudge the audience to make them brisk up at the back there. The series was handled rather well, I thought, unlike some which are rushed onto our screens. Ill-conceived, pouring out episode after episode, ill-written and ill-directed. This one did not force the pace, and the characters evolved rounded and three-dimensional. It was also very much the Thatcher era, with Arthur Daly as a confirmed 80s Tory, although Arthur's character, the small-time wheeler-dealer, always ready to turn a quick profit, even if it is on the shady side of the law, is as true thou is as true now as it was then. Part of the very success of Minder was that it was apolitical, and to a certain extent not politically correct. We introduced all types and nationalities. The only thing we could never do, because it would have created too much fuss, was to have a black person as the villain, or equally as the hero, which was all very boring. Apart from that, we took the mickey out of everyone, and it was fun. Just want to interject myself there that that's not actually true, is it? There were black villains in the programme. Perhaps he means in his episodes, but just to point that out. And also, as you may have heard, if you listen to the Leon Griffiths tribute, I would consider Minder was somewhat political, in the background at least, of some of the scripts. 
not obviously a political show, but it wasn't necessarily apolitical either. So interesting comments from in there that don't really fit some of the material. Linda Agron. Our research showed young people especially regarded Arthur as somewhat of a clown, naughty rather than nasty, whereas Terry Lee saw as the really good guy. Although it was subtle, the series had a strong moral thread running through it, an underbelly of significance, even though people didn't necessarily realise it or care. It was, that added, it was that added depth that in the end helped to bring it to cult status. The eventual success of the show had a great deal to do with some of the fine actors who played our semi-regulars. Who could possibly imagine anybody else running the Winchester Club but Glyn Edwards as Dave? Or who else in the roles of the policeman, driven to despair by Arthur's machinations, but the sadly missed Peter Childs, who played Detective Sergeant Rycott, and Patrick Malahide in his inspired performance as Chisholm, a character worthy of a series on his own. Even Warren Clark had an episode trying to catch us, not, it has to be said, with much success. We were at Fulham Football Club one Saturday after that particular episode had been transmitted. During half-time, Warren visited the bog and found himself standing next to a little old Fulham fan who stared hard at him then said, Eh, ain't you off the telly? Actually, yes, said Warren. Weren't you in that minder? That's right. I thought so, said the man as he was leaving. Fucking useless. The original launch date for the series was a disaster. Thames TV was on strike. The show moved from September to January, directly after the strike at ITV, but during another strike at the TV Times. This scotched any chance of pre-publicity, apart from the odd line in the entertainment section of the national press. There had been no pilot, so the first awareness the audience had of Minder was a transmission of gunfight at the OK Laundrette, which had been scheduled to go out at 9pm in the old Sweeney slot. People didn't know what to make of it. Looking back, I suppose it was really quite unusual for television. Films had been made about crooks getting away with crimes in a light-hearted way, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but TV had always been much more black and white. Heroes were goodies and baddies were bad. We were neither. Arthur was not quite a real crook, and and Terry had been to prison, but was now trying to go straight, and with no qualifications at all, get a proper job. Terry also had a strong ethic of right and wrong, albeit more to do with cowboy films than most modern morals. He was also often stupidly loyal. Series evolved with the addition of new writers, and over the years the comedic side of our characters was utilised more and more, until in my view the programme eventually became far too soft. This loss of edge also coincided with developing concern about TV violence, and eventually the dreaded political correctness. Contrary to popular belief, we were contracted to do the first 11 episodes and nothing more. It was the same with the Sweeney. Whenever we finished a series, we would have a drink and say our farewells, with absolutely no guarantee that we would ever be back for more. I don't think I was that aware of how low the viewing figures were for that first series, but it did attract a small cult following, which encouraged George and me to have private chats about the possibility of a second season. I had just moved to a bigger house in Richmond, and I remember saying I wouldn't be averse to another year's guaranteed money, and neither would my mortgage company. George smiled and said, You've got a mortgage, have you? Yeah, hasn't everybody? I haven't had one since the late 50s, he said, with not a little smugness. At the end of a television awards dinner at the Dorchester, I found myself sharing an elevator with Brian Ginger Cowgill, 
program controller at Thames Television. I really enjoyed that minder, he said as we descended to the lobby. Would you fancy doing some more? I wouldn't mind, I responded. I thought the scripts were terrific. Hmm, he mused. Let's have a go, shall we? I can't tell you whether they had already planned another season, or whether seeing me had jogged Brian's memory, but things moved pretty quickly after that, and we started the new series of 13 shows in early 1980. The only black spot was that sadly, since finishing the first series, old Leon Griffiths had had a stroke. However, although undergoing treatment, he was sufficiently well to oversee and consult with some of the new writers commissioned by Linda Agron. The first day's filming was more like a happy reunion of old friends than the start of six months' hard graft. Once again, I had Barry Summerford standing in for me and my old friend Mike Sutcliffe driving. George was equally at home with everyone. It was as if we'd never been away. We shared a dressing room and a caravan, did the crossword together and occasionally lost some money on a horse. We even agreed to wait for each other when called for a scene together so that neither one nor the other could ever be accused of being late on set. There was only one bone of contention. George would not join the crew and me in the pub at lunchtime or after work. Since he refused to have a studio driver, he had to drive himself, which meant that not only did he not drink, but neither did he buy anyone else a drink either, which duly gave rise to my calling him a mean sod. Eventually we came to an arrangement whereby he would come to the pub on the last Friday of every month and whenever there was a birthday. With a crew in excess of 60, there were several birthdays during the shoot. George would buy everyone a drink, have his coke, and go back to his lunch with the caterers. George Cole. Every fifth Friday, Dennis made sure everyone, including total strangers, was told to be in the pub at lunchtime because George was actually going to buy the drinks. I don't know how they did it. They'd down two or three large vodkas and then be back on set. The only time I saw it affect Dennis's work was after lunch on his birthday. That wasn't a very good afternoon, simply because we'd started shooting early that morning and the landlord who'd worshipped him in the Sweeney had been plying him with drinks at 8am. There was also the occasion when a director new to the show tried to sack the entire unit for coming back from lunch the worse for wear and a little late. He's now a sheep farmer in Sussex. The routine was too well established from the Sweeney days for anyone or anything to change it. Because Dennis was almost never affected by these liquid lunches, and his work never suffered, it didn't disturb me. What I did find shattering when I was drawn in for those fifth Fridays, was the amount of money that got spent. I'm sure some of those people couldn't possibly afford to buy such huge rounds of drinks every day. Back to Dennis. I said to George one day, you could have one little whiskey and still be all right to drive. No, I can't, he replied. When I have whiskey, it is never one, and certainly never little. He proved this to me when he threw a party to celebrate 40 years as an actor. I found myself saying when to dissuade him from pouring quadruples every time I had a drink. He had a house full of guests and family who loved him, and the more he drank, the more he smiled. I would have said it was impossible to get on with another actor as well as I have with John Thor, but with George it wasn't so much chemistry as magic. Since when have I been on his payroll? No, no, I was going to tell you, Terry, but I was just waiting for the, the opportune moment, you know. Like now? Yeah, well, look, as I explained to you, Jeremy is doing me a favour apropos to Milts, right? Yeah, all right, yeah. yeah and, and I, in return... And by courtesy of you, I'm doing him a favour back. What sort of favour? No, no, don't lose your bottle. Nothing big, nothing you haven't handled before. Sort of, um, watchdogging type of thing, you know. What sort of watchdogging? Well, watch all things, really. I mean, to be absolutely clinical. 
Sleeping there? Leaving out. But Terry. No, 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 it's not nice, is it? What do you mean it's not nice? Me keeping down with a bleeding nag. No, I'm sorry, mate, it's not on. Terry, <laughs> this is the countryside. This is your great outdoors. Look, you could be sitting behind a desk in a Soho club, breathing in all that ciggy smoke and all that rubbish, grappling with legless marauders from Man United's far-flung legions. Having aggro. This is Shangri-La. No, Arthur, it's not on. Almost chasers. No, Arthur. Well, if you want to, Patrick, there's always them that will. Yeah, well, you better get hold of them. Listen, wouldn't be the first time that a stable lass has stood guard all night lying down with the racehorse. Uh, a bird? Yeah. The mind boggles, doesn't it? I mean, what sort of scruffy scrubber have you got to get who's going to sleep with a horse in a stable, eh? Hey? Hello. I'm Jocelyn Maxwell Saunders. Oh, I'm Arthur Edward Daly. Oh, you must be the good Samaritan who's volunteered to give a watchful eye on this chap. Um, well, well no, actually. No, it's, uh, it's me. Terry McCann. Oh, hello. It really is awfully kind of you. That was silly. Any friend of Arthur? We're awfully grateful, Pell and I. Pell's his stable name. I'm riding him next week. I'm Rita. I was going to get landed with a job of spending me nights in there, so you've done me a right good favour. I've given up all hope of getting any beauty sleep. Yeah, well, your need is greater. Any road. If there's anything I can do for you, you only have to ask. No, I'll uh, do my utmost not to be a bother. Tough you are. God, dear old law. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Oh. Oh. The first episode of the second series was televised on 11th September 1980. Written by Willis Hall and directed by Martin Campbell, it was called National Pelmet and centred on me guarding a racehorse. This meant sharing a stable with it. There was one scene where I'm trying to go to sleep but being severely put off by the horse's flatulence. I don't know where they got that horse, but believe me, it farted right on cue. That first episode made the top 20 of the ratings, and every week the show climbed higher. I can't explain why. As good as the new scripts were, they were certainly no more brilliant than the first series, but people were rushing home to watch our programme. My theme song rose to number three in the charts, and suddenly we were an overnight success. By the end of 1980... Minder was one of the biggest shows on TV. Now there was no need for a great deal of discussion about doing another series. Scripts were commissioned immediately. George Cole. One thing Dennis and I agreed on was that a lot of swearing had to go. We also made a decision about directors. Neither of us knew enough about the all up and coming crowd, so director approval was hard to justify. We solved it by coming up with the idea of director disapproval. This epic piece of diplomacy 
was created while sitting in the car one day waiting for our queue. We started going through our list of don't wants when one of us said, oh, and who's the one who directed that episode about such and such? What was his name? Don't know, but we definitely don't want him. What was his name? Christ, no. We looked at each other. It's the one who's directing this one. Back to Dennis. Linda Agron had been nurturing a writer called Tony Hoare, who had written one episode in the first series, four in the second, and would go on to share the bulk of the work in the third series with Andrew Payne and Leon. Happily, Leon had recovered from his stroke and was well enough to come back to work with us. Tony, it has to be said, above any other writer I've met, had a tremendous knowledge of how to deal, or rather not deal, with the law. I hope I'm not libeling my old mate by saying I believe he actually started writing while being entertained by Her Majesty's Prison Service. He may have been a great loss to the criminal fraternity, but he was a real bonus to us. We had honed down the directors to Robert Young, Ian Sharp, Mike Vardy, Francis McGahey, and my old buddies Tom Clegg, Terry Green, Roy Ward-Baker and Ian Toynton. <clears throat> By now too, with the acceleration of the show to cult class, people were begging to be in it. Wonderful artists like Susie Quattro, Mike Greed, Richard Griffiths, Gareth Hunt, Alfie Bass, Nigel Davenport, Gary Olson, Pete Postlethwaite, Billy Murray, Russell Hunter, Paul Eddington, Simon Cadell, Honor Blackman, Richard Bryars, Simon Williams, Morris Denham, and Max Wall. These last two fine performers played a couple of old lags who in their younger days had pulled off a big robbery. Max Wall's character had taken the rap and been sent to prison for a very long time, but their booty had been hidden and never recovered. It was called the Birdman of Wormwood Scrubs. Max Wall, although a comic genius, at that time had limited acting experience. In one particular scene, Arthur and Terry have to pick him up from jail and drive him to his house. Quite often when we were doing car sequences, we would rehearse the scene statically to make sure the camera angle was correct, the microphones were not in shot, and the actors knew what they were doing. A camera would be rigged to the side of the car, and the sound equipment would be set up on the floor together with the clapperboard, which because of the confined space we operated ourselves. Once all was in order, we would drive the designated route until actors, director and crew were happy that everything was right. In this particular instance, Max was in the back of the car and George and I were in the front with me driving. The script was supposed to go like this. Arthur. Come on, Terry, this place gives me the vapours. Terry to Max. All right, son, where are we going? Max. Take me to Primrose Hill. We took up our positions and prepared to start. I turned on the camera and George the tape machine. 27, take one, action. Arthur. Come on, Terry, this place gives me the vapours. Terry. All right, son, where are we going? Total silence. Cut. I turned round. Max, I said, we've started the scene. Do it just like we rehearsed. Max nodded. Of course, carry on. We started again. Turn camera, sound. 27, take two, action. Arthur. Come on, Terry, this place gives me the vapours. Terry. All right, son, where are we going? Once again, silence. I repeated. Where are we going? Max looked puzzled. I don't know, he said. Didn't the director tell you? We stopped the car, turned off the equipment and explained again. When Terry says, where are we going? You say Primrose Hill. And we carry on with the scene, okay? Max's face cracked into that wolfish leer. Sorry, lads, he said. You two are just like real people. I didn't realise you'd started acting. Also in this particular show was a woman called Rula Lenska. But I'll get to her later. 
top hotel. No pyjamas, no dressing gown. The man's right, you know. Oh, well, I, I've got a bit left. He can get them. Terry, all right, Terry? Yeah, yeah, Terry. Black pyjamas, size 40, got that? I think I can remember 40. What about the dressing gown, Black? Naturally. You get receipts. Naturally. Well, I'll tell you what else you didn't get. Nice belt. Crocodile or something with a nice gold buckle, eh? Gold? Well, gold plated, then. I like it. In time, I get to like you too, Terry. I'm a little diamond, me. Diamonds. Just a figure of speech, Arthur. <laughs> I need some walking about money, Arthur, you know. Petty cash. Look, Ernie, I'm, I'm not saying you won't give it back, but um, when do you expect to get your money? Three days. Oh, I see. It's, uh, it's in the country, is it? It's in a bank. A bank? Yeah. I thought, you, I thought you nicked it from a bank in the first place. And I put it in another bank. I don't believe it. Yeah, it's in a deposit account. That's why I have to give prior notice of three days before I can get it out. All that dough yeah. and interest. <laughs> and I've always said, you know, this country's got one of the finest banking systems in the world. Yeah, your Swiss bank account is all very well, but there's nothing wrong with the old lady of Fred Needle Street. The hours we worked were sometimes extremely long, and there was always a lot of dialogue to learn, but my overriding memory is of the good time we had. We still had most of our original crew, including Dusty Miller, Roy Pointer, John Maskell and Tony Dorr, who had all been there on the first day of the Sweeney. I can't tell you how comforting this is. There might be an instance, for example, when the director would be quite happy with a scene when we would not. John John, Maskell, knew us so well he'd intuitively know. Didn't you like that? He'd ask us quietly. Not as much as the rehearsal. So rather than George or me requesting to go again, he'd claim he had a problem and we'd reshoot. There is an unwritten law that if a cameraman says he wants to reshoot a scene, it is accepted without question. But if an actor makes the same request, the director invariably responds with something like, it looked fine to me and we're running out of time. Obviously by now we had a certain amount of power but George and I believed the director was nearly always right, nearly, and was definitely the boss. Several of the crew, especially John John, Dusty and Roy, were keen for me to direct a few episodes. I loved the idea too, but whether it was fear or just my usual laziness, I shied away from suggesting the idea. Besides, George and I were allowed so much input that quite often I felt I was directing the show. Every now and then a new director would be discovered and allowed to work on the show. It must have been very strange for them. Normally they'd say, I want this, I want that, we'll shoot this there, and then we'll etc, etc. With us it was slightly different. George and I never threw our weight around. We would listen to whatever they had to say, and if we agreed we would do whatever was asked of us. But if we thought there was a slightly better way, we would suggest it. We were very aware that new directors want to do their best work in their own way, in their own time. We were also more than aware that they would only be around for two weeks at a time whereas we and the crew were working five days a week for six months or so. I really resented days when I was working and George wasn't, not because he was having time off and I wasn't, but I knew that the day wouldn't, just wouldn't be as much fun. The first thing we always did when we received a new script and schedule was to check who had which days off. If he had more than I did, I would say, oh no, you're going to leave me to work with those strangers again. It really was an extraordinary relationship, considering how different we were although both of us used to boast about coming from the Golden Triangle. 
Brixton, Tooting and Clapham, and from working class families. Maybe we had more in common than we thought. Minder peaked with the third series, winning huge audiences around the world, except for America, where the language barrier and the accents baffled US executives and made it unacceptable. They even suggested subtitles. George Cole. Dennis and I began to realise just how much Minder had pierced people's consciousness when taxi drivers would shout out, How's her indoors? Or you should pay that boy more than you're paying him, you know. We even received letters from people asking if they could buy something from Arthur's lockup. During one of the breaks from the series, Dennis was performing in the West End in the musical Windy City, and there was a dust-up between him and his musical director. The press were immediately on to me. What do you think about your boy then, Arthur? I was appearing in Pirates of Penzance at the same time when my co-star Pamela Stevenson was reported for saying something obscene at a Savoy women's lunch. Again, the press wanted to know what Arthur Daly had to say about it. I was also asked what Arthur would think about Fergie going off on holiday, leaving her children behind. Tom Clegg. Although the series was originally written for Dennis, as it progressed, it became more a shared thing. This is where Dennis was so generous. Quite legitimately, he could have turned round and objected. After all, George was becoming quite the star. Most of the storylines inevitably centred on Arthur Daly's wheeling and dealing, and the writers found it easier to write all that rhetorical, non-abusive Afghanit stuff than they did to expand the subplots and dialogue for Dennis. However, Dennis is not an actor obsessed with his own ego. He lives for his work. He loves his work. He is an extremely good actor, the ultimate professional, maybe sometimes too modest for his own good, but someone whose only interest is what is right for the project. It became obvious fairly quickly that the strength of the series lay in the relationship between the two guys. You could be out on great locations doing amazing car chases, yet some of the best scenes were just the two of them talking in the bar at the Winchester Club, with Dave interjecting his lovely dry comments. Wonderful stuff. Linda Agron. Those early series broke new ground. It was tough drama with comedy. It had a dark side and the comedy was not straight. If you got the jokes, great, but no one was stopping for it. But bit by bit, a shift took place. The balance changed and they allowed it to become funny. Leon and I were both concerned. Three series had been enough. The writers had used up the best ideas, the most exciting storylines, but Thames wouldn't have it. They were determined the show would go on. So it stopped being creatively led. The original writers had written themselves out and the new ones force-fed the programme with jokes. Dennis became increasingly uncomfortable, and quite rightly so. Terry was turning into a feed for Arthur. What a shame Minder was not killed off at its peak. Instead, it was allowed to die slowly in front of the public. Now, let's start with the very last comments there from Linda Agron. Very harsh stuff, really. Essentially saying that although Dennis appeared all the way up until Series 7, he wasn't happy from the end of Series 3 and would like it to have finished there. Now, you have to say, first of all, it does beg the question, well, why did he continue? He certainly didn't have to. So, did he continue just for the money, or did he continue because he enjoyed working with George Cole so much? interesting dilemma to ponder. But the fact that Dennis finishes that chapter with a particularly scathing comment from the script executive 
suggests that he really had got fed up during the Minder filming process. However, that doesn't explain why it would be that he wouldn't talk about the series when asked very often. Why, for instance, if he was so happy with the first three series, did he not just refer back to those series whenever he talked about it and explain that he wasn't keen on the second half of the show that he was in? It seemed to be much more than that. It seemed to be that he'd actually got fed up of Minder completely. And forever, because he never really enjoyed speaking about it, it seemed. Towards the end of the Minder chapter, he mentioned meeting Rulalenska and that he would get to her later, which indeed he does, because obviously they married. And also, equally obviously, she was a very big part of his life, and lots of negative things happened between the two of them that were eventually publicised. Having reread the whole book again, and having some hindsight and some insights into the programme, I've come to the conclusion that the reason Dennis hated Minder so much was because he associated the second half of his filming years in the programme with meeting Rula Lenska, and that from the time they met onwards, he was obsessed with her, as he describes in the book, and others also describe in the book. The problem was that in the end, she treated him so badly and so terribly, and caused lots of problems for him even physically, with his health deteriorating because of his stress, that he didn't end up having a very nice opinion of Rula at all. And what was his absolute love of his life turned out to be someone he intensely disliked, or certainly very much disliked in terms of what direction his life had gone with her. So, I'll just repeat that. I think the conclusion I've come to is that it's not Minder itself, that perhaps, yes, he did obviously think that the writing had changed, and he wasn't too keen on the series four onwards compared to the first three. I'm sure that's true. But George Cole continued not only for those series, but also obviously three more when Dennis left. So they can't have been that unhappy with the scripts. It's therefore my conclusion that it's the introduction of Rulalenska, who he met filming Minder, that caused him so many personal and family problems, and he associated that with Minder. And unfortunately, that's why he had the opinion he did overall about the series. You would have to read the entire book to truly glean the details behind their fractious relationship, and although you have to acknowledge there must be two sides to a story, Rula Lenska really does not come out very well at all. And it's not just Dennis, but many people who are around him before and after, who have nothing but bad things to say about her. This wasn't just a bad relationship, more of a systematic abuse of someone's good nature. I do think it spoiled Dennis's view of Minder, but it should also be acknowledged that he wasn't too keen on very much around the late 80s and early 90s era, and several things went wrong for him. The shenanigans around the movie Cold Justice, for instance, which we cover in the tribute episode. The good news is that once Dennis moved forward and permanently away from the ruler connection, he once again reinvented himself and lived the last 25 years or so of his life, enjoying himself with his new family and lifelong friends and colleagues. And when you think of it that way, it makes sense that Minder and other 80s or 90s mentions would only remind him of times he'd rather forget, albeit not because of anything to do with the programme. After all, we are talking about the greatest TV programme ever made, and as you have heard, Dennis loved working with George Cole. Their great rapport is still there to be seen all these years later, so let's raise a toast to that. And who better to sing us out than Dave King from the Gunfight at the OK Laundrette episode? 
That's right, comedian, actor and singer Dave King, who played Alfie in the episode. Reminder was the story of Dennis's life, and I hope you enjoyed listening to his reminiscing over the show. Thanks for listening. Someday I'm going right The story of my life I'll tell about the night we met And how my heart can't forget the way You smile at me I'd like the world to know The story of my life The moment when your lips met mine And that first exciting time I held You close to me The sorrow and the love was breaking up The memory of a broken heart And later on the joy of making up Never, never more to part There's one thing left to do Before my story's through I've got to take you for my wife So the story of my life can start and in with you The sorrow and the love was breaking up The memory of a broken heart And later on the joy of making up Never, never more to part There's one thing left to do Before my story's through I've got to take you so the story of my life can start and end. It can start and end. It can start and end with you.